Hello, Duncan Green here with your weekly roundup of posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. Um, Monday we started off with the customary links I liked. I think my favourite was a screen grab from a book published in 1926 of useful Arabic phrases for British officers, which kind of accidentally gave this amazing insight into the kind of things British officers were doing in the Arab countries in the 1920s. Um, for example, uh, Arabic for, I will take everything and give you a receipt, which I thought was a rather wonderful summary of the British Empire um, uh, in, one, in one sentence. Tuesday, we had some uh, new research by Chris Hoy and Francisca Maga on the perceptions of inequality. So obviously, I'm spending a lot of time writing about actual inequality, but this is how do people perceive it. And they, uh, they did um, you know, research in surveys in several countries, um, uh, 12 countries, I think, and came up with some really interesting findings. Firstly, most people put themselves in the middle of the income distribution, even when they're not. Most people think inequality is actually much lower than it really is. And even though they think it's lower than it really is, they think it's too high and they want to bring it down. So there's some fairly straightforward implications for campaigners. The more you get people to understand how bad inequality is, the more they're likely to want to do something about it. So that's quite useful for that um, uh, fuel for the, the global inequality campaigners. On Wednesday, I had uh, Andrew Caleras from Palladium and David Rinnett from Bifid talking about an adaptive uh, management program in Kyrgyzstan, which I still think is the hardest country to spell uh, in of any of the 190-odd countries. But uh, if you think of one that's more impossible to spell than Kyrgyzstan, do let me know. Um, in Kyrgyzstan, they are trying to do adaptive management and take it outside the government, the governance bubble. Most adaptive management is about institutional reform, government reform, civil service, anti-corruption, all these kind of things. And they're trying to actually bring in a sort of market systems approach. The piece is really useful. It's absolutely dripping with toolkits. So if you're a practitioner working on the issues of uh, market systems and you want to think find out what adaptive management can contribute, that's a pretty good place to start. On Thursday, Anna Chernoba of um, uh, Oxfam wrote a really uh, personal piece about her experience, her encounters with Syrian refugees in Lebanon, prompted by the terrible weather. You know, there's lots of photographs of Syrian refugees shivering in the cold right now. And um, uh, Anna thought back to a trip she made to the Bekaa Valley a couple of years ago which when the weather was similar. And she talked about the situation of refugees. Lebanon has millions of Syrian refugees. They are drifting towards the poorest communities in Lebanon. And there's growing sort of tensions between the refugees and the poor Lebanese communities over access to resources and, uh, and, 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 and livelihoods. So... Uh, she compared that to her own experience because Anna was a refugee uh, in Boston in the 90s from Russia. So really interesting comparison and that they, yeah, and, and saying because of the sectarian politics of Lebanon where it's all a, uh, uh, everything's divided up on, along sectarian lines, the state is actually much less able or willing to respect the rights of refugees. So Anna's point is how do we get back to a rights-based approach to refugees rather than just dumping them in some of the poorest places in Lebanon. And then Friday, uh, I reported back on a really enjoyable uh, morning at uh, with Christian Aid Ireland, 
Bond and David Booth from ODI and a bunch of people from, especially from the NGO sector, again on adaptive management. It's a slogan at the moment. And this is a Irish Aid funded program uh, run by Christian Aid Ireland in seven countries. And it, it contributes, I think, to a useful new understanding of this whole adaptive management scheme development scheme paradigm, which I'm uh, which I talk about a lot on the blog. Firstly, it's specifically about how NGOs do it when most of the literature on adaptive management is about the big bilaterals um, and the World Bank and the big guys working with government. Second, it's the seven countries are all what we would call fragile, conflict and violence affected states, so really messy, difficult places uh, where um, whereas most of the case studies on adaptive management have been done in more stable places where things are just easier to run. And we know that the future of aid lies in these uh, you know, fragile and violent places because that's where the aid budget is going. Those are the places that will continue to need aid. So these kind of case studies on how do you do it in places where life is very scary uh, are really useful. And then the third was a very INGO, sort of NGO perspective what does this mean for the, our, our model, and especially our model of partnership? So, you know, NGOs far more than um, uh, bilaterals, I think, and, and, and faith-based NGOs in particular have a deep commitment to lasting relationships with partners, partner NGOs, partner civil society organizations in developing countries. So it's all very well, you know, the, the difficulty of the world being adaptive, but what does that mean for our partners? And I think what they found with partnership uh, with the partners was that they, they both love it and hate it. They love it because, in a sense, it's been it's validating the way they've always thought it works. You know, you have to be responsive, you have to be flexible. You can't just sort of rigidly impose some plan and ignore what's going on around you, the events and what you learn about what does and doesn't work in a given place. But they also hate it because, in a sense, uh, you know, especially the, the field staff, maybe the lower level program officers, have been raised on traditional aid programs where you have a plan, you implement it, you get paid at the end of the month, you put your kids through hospital, nice and uh, through school, beg your pardon, put your school the kids through school, and yeah, everything's fairly straightforward. Now they've been asked to implement these, to have iteration and feedback, to dance with the system. They don't like it. And there's particular things which uh, which uh, Christian Aid Ireland has found. So, so that, for example, if you're an NGO which does one thing, like if you do conflict mediation, and then it turns out through your iterative learning that actually the thing a given community needs is not conflict mediation, but better jobs or access to credit, what are you supposed to do? Just give the money back to the donor and say, sorry, you got the wrong partner? It's a real problem with the way aid is designed. Um, and it may have sort of inbuilt rigidities which are very hard to overcome. Final point on that discussion, which yeah, I could have gone on at great length about, was uh, a sort of a light bulb moment for me, which is that when you're having these discussions, some of the people in the room are assuming that you're designing a system, an aid system, an aid structure, architecture for a high trust environment, i.e., Everybody's working as hard as they possibly can. Everybody's totally well-intentioned. Everybody is dying to be transparent and to discuss their failures. And everybody is a, basically a good person doing their best. Other people in the room are more perhaps more cynical, skeptical about life. And they say, well, we need to design a system for a low-trust environment. 
How do you hold people and organizations accountable if they aren't doing their best, if they are being lazy, if they are just trying to uh, go through the motions or even steal the money? And when, when we take a high trust and a low trust mentality into the room, they often end up fighting because they don't really understand where each other's coming from. So what we need is a way of thinking about adaptive management which can manage to satisfy both camps, I think, because unless you can come up with something which is both high trust and, and low trust compatible, you're always going to end up alienating. If it's a low, low trust model, which is only low trust, then you're going to you know, almost create a problem. You fear by creating a low trust situation and reinforcing it. If it's a high trust and it's uh, only model, then every time something goes wrong, your way of working is going to be incredibly vulnerable to criticism. So we do need to bridge that gap, I think. Okay, that's enough from me for today. Have a great weekend.